Once upon a time. How many of you heard that phrase before? Maybe just a few of you. Maybe just a few times in your life. Have you ever stopped for a moment and really thought about the power that often comes when that phrase is used and usually what follows after it? Stories and the stories we tell are one of the most powerful communication tools that we have as human beings. In fact, I would argue there is very little within our communicative nature that holds quite the power that stories do. One research found, uh, I saw this week, that when you hear a story, you are 22 times more likely to remember it than any fact or list of facts that you encounter. In fact, researchers at Berkeley have found that when people hear a compelling story, you know, not a boring story, a good story, that it actually activates more parts of our brain than when we hear other things. There's something about story that draws in our minds and what we think. It draws in our emotions and what we feel. It calls us and shapes us and engages us in certain ways. I mean, even if you think about your own life, stories likely shape so much of how you understand yourself, how you relate to others, how, how you understand the world around you. Right? I mean, even if you just think about yourself, there are stories in your life that shape how you understand who you are and where you come from. I remember a few years ago, we got the opportunity uh, to do a family reunion down in Tennessee, and my whole family gathered down there, aunts, uncles, cousins, and that night we had this unique chance to sit with my grandmother, who was in her late 80s, now she's in her 90s, and just hear stories about her life and all that she had lived through. And I remember it just being one of the most profound times as the legacies of stories were shared with generation after generation, and those things inform us how we think about who, who we are. Stories are often the way in which we pass down the legacy and identities of our families. Stories are often how we relate to one another. When you get together with your friends, when you hang out, what do you usually do? You share stories, stories you've encountered, stories you've learned. When I came back from that trip, my wife didn't have the opportunity to go because our older daughter was about getting ready to have her second child. And so when I came back and I told my wife about that trip and all that had happened, you know what I didn't give her? I didn't give her an itinerary and a list of facts that we did on that trip. I told her stories. Oh, man, we went on this hike. My 80-year-old grandma hiked three miles. We saw bears. It was amazing. I'll never forget it. Stories are how we relate to one another. Stories are how we relate to the world around us. Author Donald Miller famously notes in one of his works, without story, experiences are just random. As you go through about your life, as you even think back on the events of your life, you naturally intuitively create narratives in your head of how you connect what you experience in life. We're story-formed people. Stories impact the way we think and relate to the world around us. Trace any aspect of humanity back to its origin and all the way through what you see are their stories shape how we understand who we are and our purposes in the world. Stories carry immense power. The question, though, that I want to wrestle with today, and the question I want to ask you as we lean into what we're going to talk about this morning, is what story shapes your life? What story shapes your life? Last week, we kicked off a little two-week series that we're doing called Don't Waste Your Life. 
And we began with the premise that all of us feel a hunger in our souls to live for something larger than ourselves. That we all hunger for a dynamic purpose and meaning to our lives to be connected with. And what we saw is that ultimately you and I created and designed by God to glorify him. That's the larger purpose of everything that exists, and that's our larger purpose as well. That you and I are designed, if you remember last week, like a mirror who is meant to receive the glory of God and his goodness and reflect it back out into the world. But often, as people wrestle with that, and even as I've wrestled with that in my own life, that that's our larger purpose, often the question comes, well, what, is, what does that look like? Like, how do I actually live my life oriented in a way that really does align with God's glory, with his larger purpose? How do I do that more? And I think this is where the power of story comes in. So as we seek to not waste our lives, we also, that means part of it is understanding the story that shapes us. When you think about Christianity and what it means to be a Christian, what do you think of? When you think about Scripture and what Scripture contains, what do you think of? Most people, when they think of Christianity, they think of a certain set of beliefs. This is what it means to be a Christian. I believe this and I don't believe that. Or a lot of people have the idea of a moral framework, that I do this and I don't do that. That's what Christianity really is. It's a, it's a do's and don'ts book. Oftentimes, this is how we think of Scripture, that Scripture is a, a rule book, a manual. I've heard people say that the Bible means it's just basic instructions before leaving earth. That's what the Bible means. And that's what we think of Christianity as. It's, it's an instruction manual that I'm meant to follow. Now, I don't know about you, but if that's what Christianity is, a, a set of beliefs and a set of morality do's and don'ts, that doesn't sound super compelling to me. That doesn't sound something that's like, yes, how can I be about that in my life? And I often wonder if sometimes people reject Christianity because that's what they think we're all about. I mean, who wants to sign up for a list of rules? Who's out there who's like, yes, can I have more rules to follow in my life? That's really what I'd love. Who wants to read a book that feels like an instruction manual? And you see, I think what most people fail to realize is that, well, Christianity does have beliefs, for sure. And that God does call us to live in a certain way and shape our moral framework of life. That at its core, Christianity is a story. It's a story about God, about human beings, and about the entire world. And not only that, it's the truest story that's ever been told. It's a story that's meant to shape our lives, our very understanding of our purpose, the very core of who we are. And when understood well, it compels us into aligning with God's purpose for our lives and the world. So today, in seeking to not waste our lives, what I want to invite you into is to be the sort of people that live in God's story to live in God's story. But if we're to live in God's story, right, we first need to make sure we know God's story, which is ultimately found within the scriptures. And so today, I want to help you understand the story of scripture. So I'm going to preach through the whole Bible. That's good? Now, I'm not going to go through each verse, but I want to give you an overview 
of what the story of Scripture is, so that as you think about the Bible and you think about what Christianity is, you have a framework for understanding the story that God is telling in the world through everything and the story that he wants to tell through your life. So if we're going to live God's story, we got to know God's story. And if you want to remember God's story, I want to give you a simple way you can do that. You can remember God's story by remembering four trees. The Bible is the story of four trees. So let's begin with God's story. I won't read scripture as much today. I'll reference some verses as we go along. Feel free to write down what's on the screen. You can look it up later. But in order to kind of tell the story, I'm just going to kind of tell it and share as we go. So God's story begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The story of God begins with God's act of creation. God brings into existence all that is. He orders the world and he fills it. And over and over again, as God makes the world, he says that it's really, really good. The beginning of our story is with a God who creates. He creates everything we know and he makes it the best that it possibly could be. And right at the center of God's act of creation, he creates human beings, a man and a woman. And he essentially creates them in his image, in a good and mighty way, to live in God's creation in a way where they would bring flourishing to all that God has made. And God takes the human beings and he sets them in the middle of a garden, a paradise a really good place. If, if it was a movie, the opening scene of the movie that we would see when God creates is the most beautiful image that you could think of. It's the most beautiful garden with fruitful trees, maybe a flowing waterfall and rivers that run through it, and everything is buzzing and flourishing and life, and you look at that and you think, that, that's as good as things could be. That's how the story begins. And right in the middle of everything that God creates, God puts a large tree Genesis 2 calls it the tree of life. And the tree of life is meant to be the symbol of the way God set up the entire world. That the world was created for flourishing and for life. The beginning of our story is the tree of life, which is a symbol of creation. That that's the way God set up everything and in that place, we find all these incredible dynamics for how we were made as human beings. God creates the first human being, and he breathes the breath of life into him. And he says, you're now going to live in relationship with me, like what we talked about last week. You're going to receive my glory and reflect that out into the world. That's going to be your great purpose. And not only that, I'm going to give good work for you to do in this garden that I've made for you. You're going to work it and cultivate it and protect it. So that your life has meaning and purpose in God's larger work of creation. And then God says, it's not good that you're going to be alone. I'm going to create a helper. So he creates a man and a woman to work together in corresponding relationship in order to bring flourishing to the world. And so at the beginning of our story, we have a tree set up in the middle of the garden, this representation of goodness and life. We have human beings in meaningful relationship with God, meaningful relationship with one another, meaningful relationship with the world around them who are living out their dynamic purpose that God has made them for. It's the compelling image that all our hearts desire for the world to be. All of us long for a world that's just and right and good, where nobody's in want, where everybody flourishes. What we're reminded is that's how God began the world. So I'm going to use some props today. So this is going to be my tree of life symbol. So if I keep referencing over here, that's, that's why. And it's this beautiful way that the story begins. 
The world is marked by life, and it's marked by harmony. That's what we long for and desire. But in the middle of this garden, God puts a second tree. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a tree that God gives to human beings. Hey, I found this in the back closet. Give me a break, all right? Oh, no. I lost a leg. Sorry. Awkward moments that you don't plan for, right? And so God sets up a second tree. And he tells the man and woman, listen, I've given you all the goodness of life, all the good things that you can eat, all that you ever want to live in harmony with God. But I've also given you freedom. So there's this tree, the knowledge of good and evil, the desire to not just know God, but to be God, to determine how life should be, to determine the way things should go. And God says, don't eat of that tree. That tree won't bring flourishing. What that tree will actually bring you is death and chaos and disharmony. If you try to be like me, then ultimately it's going to harm your life and the world as you know it. And so God sets these trees up in the garden. God desires for his community to walk in his word and his ways. But ultimately, if you know the story, Genesis 3 comes along and a serpent shows up in the garden and the serpent tempts the man and the woman to eat of the tree. He first comes to the woman, they see this tree, he says, listen, he distorts God's word. If you eat of that tree, you won't die. You'll be like God. You'll be able to determine good and evil. You'll be able to call the shots. You'll shape the world. And the human beings give in to temptation. They eat of the tree that God told them not to. And immediately, the whole world in their act of rebellion falls into brokenness and chaos. They immediately recognize that they're naked. Shame enters into the picture. And they immediately hide themselves from God and cover themselves up with one another. Where before they lived in meaningful, good relationship with God, now when God comes in the cool of the day, they hide from him. Before, when they lived in harmony with one another, perfectly aligned in the way God designed it, now they cover themselves from one another. They're no longer vulnerable. They distance. And where before they were designed for meaningful work, suddenly now the world falls into chaos, and God says the very core essences of your life in reproduction and bringing fruit out of the ground will now be marked by pain. And in the human rebellion, where life was designed and the world was designed to be marked by life and harmony, the world suddenly becomes marked by sin and death. A problem has entered the picture. And the question is, wait, that's not how things are supposed to be. Something's wrong here. And from the very beginning of the story, your heart naturally goes, how do human beings get back to that? We know that's what we want, but something's entered the story. Sins entered the story, and with it, it brings death. Brokenness in relationship with God, one another, the world, and even ourselves. But at the very beginning of the story, God makes a promise. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God says this. As he curses the serpent that tempted the woman, God says, I'm going to put enmity between you, 
the serpent, the symbol of evil, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Then he gives this promise. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God essentially makes a promise to the woman at the very beginning of the story to say, one day, one of your offspring is going to come, and he is going to take a blow from sin and death and chaos, but he's also going to return a blow. He's going to crush its head, which means he's going to deal with all the brokenness and sin that's entered the world, and he's going to be the one that's going to bring about what God designed the world to be. And so from the very beginning of God's story, what you're looking for is a hero, Every good story has a hero. And the Bible has a hero that you're meant to be looking for. And this hero is going to come, and he's somehow going to defeat evil, and he's going to bring God's community that he desires back into relationship with God and the flourishing that he intended for it. And so you begin to look for the hero. And the whole Old Testament is marked by people that get risen up that you think maybe they're the hero, but they're not. Adam and Eve start, they fall. Their sons are born. You think maybe there's a hero in their son. One of them murders the other one and then flees. And you think like, well, he's not the hero, certainly. Sin gets worse and worse and worse. So God calls a guy Noah and he essentially says, I'm going to wipe the earth clean from a flood. And because you're righteous, I'm going to restart this whole thing with you. And you think maybe Noah's the one that's going to do it. But Noah has this weird thing with his son. It's really odd in the text. We see, no, 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 like he's, he's not the one either. And ultimately sin keeps spreading and humanity keeps getting worse. And eventually God, it gets so bad that God's like, I can't have these humans all speak the same language. I got to scatter them across the world. And so then God decides, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose a guy, Abraham, and from him I'm going to form a nation and a people. I'm going to give them my law. I'm going to help them to be able to live out. And you think, maybe Abraham's the one. But Abraham, like, I mean, it's messed up. He, like, traffics his wife, doesn't trust God. He's a total mess, too. And you think, like, well, he's no hero. And you think maybe his son Isaac does the same thing. Jacob, no. Eventually, God's people end up in Egypt in slavery, and God raises up this guy, Moses, who then comes and leads God's people out from slavery in Egypt into the wilderness to go to the promised land. You think, here it is. Here's the hero. Finally, Moses. He's led these people out of slavery. He's going to take them into the flourishing land that God desires. But Moses fails to trust God, literally to the point where God says, you can't even enter my promised land. And when Moses' story ends, you think, well, he's not the hero either. Maybe it'll be Joshua, the guy who leads God's people into the land. Well, he fails. And judge after judge, king after king, we see failure again and again. Finally, you get to David, the climactic king of Israel, the man after God's own heart. You think, that's, if there's a hero template, that's the guy who's it. But man, he kills a guy, takes his wife, fails to trust God. His whole family ends up being a mess. Oh, he's not the hero either. At the end of the Old Testament, you think, well, where, what is God going to do about all this mess? Where's the hero that's going to conquer sin and death and ultimately going to bring God's people back into what he designed and created them for? And the New Testament opens up with the arrival of Jesus. And you think, maybe this is the hero. And you see that the Bible presents Jesus as not only a human being, but he's actually God incarnate. He's God becoming a human being who lives as a man. And Jesus lives in this really compelling way because he actually lives the way we're supposed to be designed to live. Like, he's really in relationship with God. He's really in relationship with people. He's really living his purpose and identity, and people are compelled by it. They think, oh man, that guy's got something that I want, and the poor are drawn to him, and people flock around him. But then Jesus dies. 
I didn't know that's how heroes worked. I thought he was going to come and like conquer and restore. But it's actually through his death that Jesus becomes the hero of the story. And that's actually where the third tree is located. Right at the point of Jesus' death. The Apostle Paul would say it this way in Galatians chapter 3.13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the nations so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Remember, God said that ultimately, because of their sin and rebellion, human beings would experience death. That was going to be the punishment for their sin. But the good news of the gospel is Jesus comes And although he's sinless and doesn't deserve death, he willingly takes on the curse of humanity by dying in their place on the cross. And in doing so, by hanging on that tree, he brings redemption to God's creation. He becomes the curse so that those that would trust him would be saved. They would be rescued from that place of rebellion and brokenness and brought back into relationship with God and begin to experience, again, meaningful relationship with him where he's their father and they're his children, to have meaningful relationships with others as their brother and sister, to have meaningful purpose in the world, to glorify God. The story of Jesus is the story of redemption that began all the way back at the very beginning through the creation and rebellion of humanity. But it's not where the story ends. The story ends, in our Bibles, in Revelation 21 and 22. It points us to how the story will end. And this is what it says. I'm just going to read a few verses. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The Apostle John is receiving in Revelation a revelation from God about how things will come about at the end of time. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death That curse from the beginning shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. And at the end of all time, what we see is that God actually, through Jesus, through his work, ultimately brings about a new heaven and a new earth, marked by a new city. Where it was a garden before, now we have a city. And all that it brings in that imagery to the table. And in this city, God is once again dwelling among people. Relationship is restored with humanity. Their relationships are restored with one another. The references later in Revelation about the healing of the nations, that those that were separated are brought back together, work and purpose are restored to humanity where they will live for eternity glorifying God. And you know what's right in the middle of the city? Revelation 22, 2. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life and its 12 kinds of fruit 
yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. So what God does at the end of the story is he restores back the tree that symbolizes life and harmony and flourishing for all of humanity and all of God's creation. And the story of God is really a movement from what began in a garden to be finalized in a city where those that are in Jesus once again are restored to relationship with God in a way that brings purpose and life and meaning and flourishing forever. It's a story that doesn't end. It continues. And this is the story from the very beginning of our scripture to the very end of our Bibles. That God is working and created the world good That because of sin, it has fallen into that place. But Jesus, the hero, comes to redeem God's people and to bring them back into a life of harmony forever with God. It's a great story. It's the best story with the best ending. I know of no other story in our world that compares to the story that God has given us in his word. I know of no other story that has a better ending and brings a better sense of meaning and purpose to life than this one. But the question that I want to help us think through is how do we live in this story? So now you know the story, but the question is, how do I live in it? How do I actually let it shape my life in a way that that aligns with the ultimate purpose for all things, which we saw last week, which is to bring God's glory and brings meaning into the way in which I live my every day, all the time, going to school or my job or whatever God has called me to, sort of life. So how can we live in God's story? Well, to help you do that, I want to give you five encouragements this morning. Five encouragements. And I want to put it kind of in a a metaphor or context in your mind. So... We intuitively know stories. We're wired for story. It helps form us. So for a moment, think of God's story like a movie. And think for a minute that you've been called to be an actor in that movie. Okay? So you know the story and you have a character to play in that movie. In many ways, that's how the world is. God is telling a massive story through all of creation over all of time. And you, God has designed a unique part for you to play. So that metaphor can help us kind of think through how we can live in God's story. And so from there, let me give you five encouragements for how you can live in God's story. First, understand your story through God's story. You see, the reality is the story that God is telling through all the world across all of time, God also wants to tell through your life. Meaning what's true of creation is true and desired to be true of you. That God designed you as his image bearer. He gave you a unique purpose. He desires to live in relationship with you, for you to live in harmony with others, for you to have flourishing, meaningful work that brings goodness to creation around you. That's how God designed you. But you, along with all of humanity, have turned from God's ways in rebellion, and because of that, you don't experience the flourishing that God desires for you. Instead, your life gets marked by chaos and brokenness and death. Is there anyone that looks at their life and thinks like, nope, I got no problems? No. And we all feel this internal pulse to say, I know I'm designed for something more than what I'm experiencing in the brokenness of my life. But the good news of the gospel is that in Christ, God comes to redeem us, to cover our sin, 
your personal sin. Jesus dies to take that penalty for you. And when you trust in him, God offers you grace and forgiveness over it. And then Jesus rises from the dead so that you can come restored in relationship with God and be empowered by his spirit and be brought into the new creation that God is beginning to bring into this world that will ultimately come at the end of time. And so if you've put your faith in Jesus, you're redeemed. You're restored in relationship with God. You're beginning to experience a new life with him, a new life with others, and new meaning in the world. And ultimately, then, you have a hope that God will, if you're in Jesus, bring you into his new creation to live with him for all of eternity. That's your story. And it's meant to shape how you understand who you are, what God is doing in your life. What God wants to do for the world, he tells his story through our individual stories of redemption in Jesus. So do you understand your story that way? Have you thought through the reality of who God desired for you to be? Your own reality of sin in your own life? Have you trusted Jesus and seen him as the answer and the salvation and redemption that you long for? And do you have hope for the new creation to come? If we're to live in God's story, we have to understand our stories themselves through it. Here's the second thing. Follow God's direction. Follow God's direction. Have you ever seen a movie where at the end of it, the credits come up and it says written and directed by so-and-so? You ever seen that? Oftentimes we'll see like directed by so-and-so and then written, but occasionally you'll see a movie where it's like written and directed by so-and-so. It struck me a while back that um, one of the interesting things about people who both write and direct their own movies is they have complete control over the story and the characters. Right? They've written, so they've created the story, but they're directing it, which means they're actively forming how that story is going to tell the larger story that they want to tell. God is the writer and director of all of life and creation and the writer and director over your life. God not has, only, not, has not only written his story, which scripture reveals to us, but he directs his story. That's what we mean when we say God is sovereign. He's over the whole thing, and he's directing the things of our lives in the world to tell his story exactly how he desires to tell it. And he has a role for you to play in that story, which means God has written your life, and he's directing your life. You were created by him, and you were created for purposes for him. That's why Ephesians 2 would tell us this. Paul would remind the Ephesians, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God is both your creator, but he's also your director. You were created by God's work for God's glory. And what he calls you to is to walk in the unique role that he's created for you and to follow his direction. When we talk about the moral framework of Christianity, right, that fits in God's story. The morals of Christianity are meant to help you know what it means to follow God's direction, to live in God's world, God's ways. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is just learning to live in God's world, God's way. It's following what he desires to do in and through our lives. Therefore, we join God's story best when we follow his direction. A good actor follows the direction of his director. Imagine what a movie would be like if a director came in, or if an actor came in and said, like, I'm not going to play that role. I got my own thoughts. I want to be this other guy. Director's like, uh, you're out of this movie, or it'd be a terrible movie. 
But oftentimes that's what we step on and scene. God, I got my own thoughts on this character. I'll tell you what's up. And God's like, hold up, I'm the director. Do we follow his direction? What he calls us to do with our lives? Third, know the script. God has given you a unique amount of scenes in your life that connect with God's larger story that he is telling. None of us get to determine what scenes we're in and what scenes we're not in. God has determined those. But God has given us a script so when our scenes come to play, we know how to live the way God desires for us to live in those scenes. God has given us his word so that we can know his story, so that we can follow his direction, so that we can know what God wants us to do in the everyday moments of our life, how he wants us to work, how he wants us to love, how he wants us to care, how he wants us to serve. We saw it last week. If you can eat and drink to the glory of God, God desires through his word to show you all the ways that you can glorify God. The question is, do you know the script? No actor or actress worth their salt would show up on the set of a movie or a play and not have studied their lines. No. They would know their lines. They would know the story. They would understand the character that they're meant to play in that story, the way the director wants them to be, and what their lines are in that. God has given his script so you can know your lines, so when the times comes in the scene of your life, you can align with the story that he's desiring to tell in those moments. Do you know your lines? Have you studied the story? Do you understand the character God wants you to be? I don't mean being someone else. I mean the character that God has uniquely created for you to be. We don't read scripture to get some spiritual nugget so we can have a slightly better day. We read scripture so we can be entirely formed by the story of God, understand what he desires for us so that when we're at our jobs, when we're at our schools, when we're at the grocery store, when we're parenting our kids, we know this is what it looks like to live in God's way in this moment. And God's given us a story, a large story and a whole bunch of little ones to help us understand how we can live the way he desires for us to live. Four, make Jesus the hero. Make Jesus. Jesus the hero. Every great story has a hero. In God's story, it's Jesus. He's what the whole thing is about. There's not a secondary hero. There's one hero in the story of God, and it is Jesus Christ. Every good story has a leading role and a supporting role. In God's story, there's one leading role. It's God in and through Jesus. And everyone else plays a supporting role to making much of Jesus. That's why one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, you have the option of either making much of Jesus in your life willingly or God will one day compel you and the rest of the world to make much of Jesus. It's your choice. But at the end of the day, the reminder is, You're called to make Jesus the hero of your story. It's all about him. That's what we saw last week. It's all about God's glory. And God's glory is manifested most chiefly in the world in and through the work of Jesus Christ. You see, the problem from the very beginning of the story is human beings want to put themselves in the center of God's world and God's story. The reality of the rebellion of the fall is we said, no, I don't want to follow your direction. I want to make the rules. I want to choose. I'll be the center. I don't want to take my cues from you, God. 
I'll do what I want. And that's what all of humanity has been doing for the last several thousand years. Make much of me. I'm the center. I'm what it's about. God, you're supposed to orbit around me. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm the center. Jesus is the hero. And when you center yourself around your life, you're not big enough for your life to orbit around. That's why it crashes and burns. It's designed for a larger purpose, to make much of Jesus. Jesus is the center of our story. And if we live in this story, we will make much of him. You cannot have Christianity without Jesus. But here's, here's the truth. Even going back to how you understand your own story. As a pastor, I sit with a lot of people. And I love to hear people's stories. It's one of my questions. Tell me your story. Tell me about your life. I love to hear it. I get lots of opportunities to do that. And I sit with a lot of people who are Christians, or so they tell me. And usually I'll ask them, what's your story of faith? What, what does it look like? How did you? And, and sadly, I, I'm not speaking hyperbolically here. Sadly, I cannot count the number of times, because it's so many, people I've sat with who have told me the story of their life, who are Christians, who never even say the name Jesus. Yeah, I grew up in a Christian home, and, you know, um, I just had a time where I really, like, walked away from the Lord and just didn't do anything. And then, you know, I, I decided I probably should go back to church, and so I did. And, you know, it's been really good for me and my family, and we come every Sunday, and it's been good. And maybe we got involved in a life group, and I'm like, and, and Jesus? Like, he's in there somewhere? Like, yeah, I just was really struggling in life. I was caught up in addiction or whatever, but then I found a higher power and started to align my life and found some community and good people around me and things have really turned around and now I'm involved and I'm like, and Jesus? Like, friends, I, I'm not exaggerating. I've heard those stories more times than I can count where I'm like, where's Jesus in your story? Like, if he's the center of this whole thing, and, and you're saying, my story's going to be marked by this story, and you don't bring him up? I'm confused. Like, just imagine with me, all right, that um, you went out, you told me, hey, tonight I'm going to go see, let's imagine a new Superman movie came out. And you're like, I'm going to go see it with my friends. I'm like, great, okay. And the next day I see you, and I'm like, how was that new Superman movie? And you're like, oh, it was awesome. It was one of the great stories. There was this woman, Lois Lane, and she was like suddenly in this really terrible situation, and I thought the whole world was going to fall apart, but then suddenly everything got better, and then the movie ended, and it was like happily ever after. It was awesome. And you like give me the whole plot and how it was awesome, but you never mentioned Superman. I'm like, what movie did you see? Like, how do you share the story about the hero, but never talk about the hero? If you understand your story, but Jesus isn't the center, let's just be clear. I'm not sure if you're a Christian. Because a true Christian will put Jesus at the center, and when they tell their story, they're going to say, Jesus is my hero. Jesus is the one who saved me. Jesus is the one who saw me in the mess of my life, the sin and brokenness and disaster. And Jesus stepped in, and because of his grace and his cross, he rescued me from that, and he's brought me into this whole new life where I'm starting to feel God again. I'm starting to experience his love. I'm starting to be in relationship with people, and everything's turned around, and I didn't have anything to do with it. I was a mess, but I found Jesus. Jesus, that's the story. And if Jesus isn't your hero, then you're not telling the same story. So make Jesus your hero. And then finally, live for the end of the story. 
the beautiful story is that our story ends in good restoration. But the reality is, you right now are meant to be a foretaste of that. Every good story has foreshadowing. You know what foreshadowing is? It's where a good author will show you a little taste of what's going to come at the end. And it intrigues you, and it draws you in, and it kind of foreshadows what's ultimately going to come. In God's great story, brothers and sisters, if you're in Jesus, you're God's foreshadowing. You're God's foreshadowing. Go back to the verse that I read over you to start with. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Now what I love is, if you read that in the original language, Paul actually makes like this, this emphatic statement. It, it, you could literally translate it as, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. It's like, you're here. That, that's now what you're marked by. If you're in Jesus, God has already begun to bring you into the end of the story. He's restored you in relationship with himself. He's beginning to restore you in relationship with one another. He's beginning to restore meaning and purpose in your life. And so God has designed you to be a foreshadowing of what is ultimately to come. So that when people see you, they say, oh, that's the story I want to be a part of. So I have this uncle. And he, um, we've often gone and seen movies together over the, over the years. And he has this habit when we go and see a movie, we always get there early. We always sit through the trailers. And he always applauds or boos the trailer based on his level of intrigue. So we'll be like sitting there, some movie comes up, and he's excited and he starts clapping. Like, woo! Or a bad trailer comes up and he's like, boo. And I'm usually like sitting there with my head down like, why do you have to do this to me? Like people are looking, whatever. He's not embarrassed that he does it. And he's not embarrassed that I'm telling you this story. That's for sure. But you and I both know, you've seen a trailer of a movie where you thought, man, I want to see how that story ends. I want to lean into that. And you've seen a trailer where you thought, I want nothing to do with that story. Friends, you and I, together, we're meant to be the trailer for the end of God's story. We're meant to be the people that when people look at us, they say, they see our lives and they think, oh man, I want to be part of that story. That, that's a good one. That's way better than the story I'm living right now. It seems like they've got something that, that I don't see anywhere else. That when we live in part of God's story, we give people the opportunity to step in. Students, when you go out this week to Hope Week, part of what you will do is you will present a story to the world around you. You will show them by your actions our God is one who comes to serve and save. And so we want to come to serve. And we want you to know that Jesus saves. What you do this week is part of God's story that he's telling. He wants to use your life and what you do for his glory and his larger purpose. And that's what God wants to do through all of our lives. One of the great questions you can ask is, how will things be at the end of the story? How can I begin to live that way right now? So at the end of the story, we're going to live in meaningful relationship with God and flourishing work. How do I start that now in my job? What are ways I can begin to align my heart and the way I work so that it works the way God wants me to, not just the way the world tells me to? How can I align my purposes with him? 
right? So, so you think, like, oh, in, in God's eternity, nations are reconciled, which means the, the things that divide us in our world by culture, race, ethnicity, that in God's kingdom, God has done a work in Jesus to bring unity where every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation's brought together. And a community that's marked by God's story is going to go back and say, how do we kind of be that community now? How do we begin to work for reconciliation now? How do we find unity across racial or ethnic or economic or social lines so that we can be a picture of what God's kingdom is going to be like at the end? In God's kingdom, we honor one another. How do I live with honor towards people now? Right? That's the sort of question that you begin to ask. And scripture begins to shape. And as you do that, suddenly your whole life has the potential to make much of God. See, that's something I think people want to be a part of. People want to be part of a good story. The question is, what story are we shaped by? And what story are we telling with our lives? Donald Miller says this, and I'll close with this. He says, where there is an absence of story, or perhaps a bad story, a good storyteller walks in and changes reality. He doesn't critique the existing story or lament about his boredom like a critic. He just tells something different and invites other people into the new story he is telling. My prayer is that your life would tell those around you there's a different and better story and you can be part of it too. And if we do that, man, we won't waste our lives. We'll see God do some incredible things. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the incredible story that you are telling. Thank you for what you've done through Jesus. He's our hero. He's the one we're about. He's the one we live for. And even as we stop this morning to think about what the whole story is about, we're reminded it's all about you. And our desire, Lord, together is to make much of you. Help us. Help us to align our lives with the story that you're telling. Help us to know our unique role. Help us to know what it looks like to live everyday life aligned with your ways. Help us to know your word that our lives can find their great purpose of glorifying you in everything we do. Even now, as we prepare to see and celebrate the redemption of Jesus that he accomplished by his death and resurrection, I pray that you would use it as an opportunity for us to center our stories back on him, to celebrate his work, to look to him and say, yes, yes, Jesus is my hero. And to live in light of that. So Spirit, would you even work now as we respond in song, I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.